Now, I told you last Sunday that we're going to get into the T-bones stake of Bible theology tonight. We are. Um, we're going to be talking about the sovereignty of God. We're going to be talking about Israel. Now, before I even begin, I, I want to just throw this out. Why does this matter to you and me? Romans 9, stuff about Israel. Why does that even matter? Because if it doesn't matter, why does it matter that I teach it? Right? But everything in the Word of God matters. Amen? Well, it just so happens Israel is the crown jewel of Bible prophecy. If you want what's going on in Bible prophecy, study Israel. Watch Israel. Keep your eye on Israel. Because Israel is the crown jewel of Bible prophecy. How many of you really believe we're in the last of the last days? You believe that? Yeah. And that being said, Israel is playing a key role. Is that you back there, David Hutto? Hello, David. Sorry, folks, I just had a flash, blast from the past. Haven't seen David in a while. You didn't think I'd see you, did you? There we go. All right, now, um, Israel, there are those that teach and those that believe that Israel no longer matters, that the church has replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel, that the land of Israel, the nation of Israel, uh, no longer matters in, uh, at all in Bible prophecy or to God, no more than any other nation. And we're going to see tonight that that is totally false, totally false. The church has not replaced Israel. Amen? No, we have not. We're, we're a whole different animal, the, the church of Jesus Christ. So uh, let's dig in. Take a walk down the Roman road, part nine, Israel, oh, Israel. Now, Paul is really shifting gears now. He's taking his attention from the church and how we walk in victory that we saw in chapter eight, and he's focusing now on the land of Israel. He's going to say some heavy things. Last time we saw that creation, Christians, and the Holy Spirit are doing what, everybody? Groaning awaiting the sons of God to come into their full inheritance. We, we talked about that last time, that uh, even uh, the mammals, uh, the rest of God's creation, not just humankind, but the rest of the creation in their own way are groaning, awaiting for us to come, for the church to come into our full inheritance, which means the return of Christ to the earth and the launching of the millennial kingdom of Christ. All right? When there will be a whole new world, a whole new reality. Uh, the Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And how many of you are so glad we're getting a new body? Right? All right. We learned that once we are adopted as God's children, we then must become adapted for heaven. And that's talking about our sanctification, our spiritual growth, growing into the fullness of the stature of Christ, so on and so forth. Then we saw, here's some big theological buzzwords. We saw that we were foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified by God. If you want to know what those things mean, get last week's message. Now, Paul ended this incredible chapter 8 with the triumphant refrain. Read it with me, everybody. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Everybody say more. Well, if you conquer something, how can you be more than a conqueror? Because the word more means not only have you conquered the foe, but the foe is subservient to you. The foe is subservient to you. So it's more than a conqueror. Now, this time we turn our attention to Israel. We're going to see that chapters 9 through 11, and this is deep stuff, are best read and reread as a single unit. Now, I know all of you probably know this, but I'll just for those who might not, there, the Bible wasn't written in chapters. Chapters are man made. Okay? The Bible was written in a continuum, and it was written on a papyrus scroll. And uh, that you rolled up. We're all familiar with this. We've seen movies, you know, uh, uh, of ancient times where they, you know, undid the, the, the ribbon around a, a scroll and rolled it out and made some proclamation. Well, that's what the original Bible manuscripts were written on, um, scrolls of papyri, and uh, they were rolled up, and there were no chapters. 
It was just a continual message. So the chapters are man-made, and sometimes I personally will agree with where a chapter break happened, and sometimes I disagree with the translators. I wish they would have not broken the chapter or broken it up right here. And what we're about to see is that 9 through 11 ought to be read as one scroll. Are you with me? 9 through 11 ought to be read as one continuum. No chapter, chapter breaks because it's about the same thing, Israel. Okay? They begin with a lament and they end with a doxology. Now, up to now, Paul has discussed the principles of the gospel. What are they? Uh, they are the reality of man's sin, his need for salvation, and the work of sanctification that begins to take place immediately upon your being born again. Sanctification is when the Holy Spirit begins to remove you from the world, from the, the effect of the world, the influence of the world, the thinking of the world, the lifestyle of the world. And Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not what to this world? Conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's the work of sanctification. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. All right? That's Romans 12, 1 to 3. Now, in the next three chapters, he discusses the problems of the gospel particularly as these problems relate to the Jewish people. And I'm going to explain this. So everybody perk up. We're going to use our minds tonight. God had made exceeding great and precious promises to several of what we call the patriarchs and the Old Testament leaders. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon. God had made incredible promises to them. Now, many of the promises he made to them centered on the person of the Messiah who was to come, the Lord Jesus Christ, who ironically was murdered by the Jews uh, at Calvary, and it was to them the promises had been given of a Messiah. And so here's their promise, and what did they do? They killed their promise. Wow, that's heavy stuff. They murdered their promise. Uh, John wrote in John 1, 10 to 11, he came into the very world, speaking of Jesus, he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, the Jew, and even they rejected him. Not just rejected him, but they killed him. It was the Sadducees, the Pharisees, it was the religious leaders who cried out to Pilate, we don't want Jesus, give us Barabbas, we want you to crucify Jesus. And then when Pilate said, I find no fault in him, what do you want me to do? And they spoke a curse over themselves. They said, let his blood be on our heads and our children's heads. Oh, I, even when I quote that, it makes me shudder because they spoke a curse on themselves when they did that. And we're going to see that tonight. That when they said, let, let his blood be on our heads, oh my, the murdered blood of the Son of God be on our heads and our children's heads. So they not just uh, cursed themselves, but they brought a curse on their descendants. Wow. Now, in his love, God gave the nation a second chance. They rejected Jesus. They ordered his crucifixion. They rejoiced when he was killed. But God gave the Jewish nation a second chance. Everybody say, God is good. Don't tell me God's not merciful or he did the Jewish people wrong. No, look at this. After they killed him, he still gave them a second chance. An opportunity to reverse its terrible verdict and by repentance and faith to accept Christ as Savior. They had a chance. The book of Acts, the history of which Paul himself plays a prominent part, records this second chance. That's what the book of Acts is primarily or at least a great deal about. The Jews. Paul preached to them. He went everywhere preaching to them. He went in, you will read in the book of Acts that when Paul went into a new city or town, it says it was his custom to make a beeline for the synagogue. 
and minister, teach, preach, reason with them concerning Jesus. Paul did everything he could. And finally the day came when they had a big dispute amongst themselves in front of him. And he said, I wash my hands of you. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. Now the book of Acts, uh, or the Jews, unfortunately, remained stubborn, and they remained hard-hearted. And the Jews of the homeland, that is Jerusalem, as well as the Jews of the diaspora. Now the diaspora is when they were dispersed after the destruction of Jerusalem. Diaspora means dispersion. They were dispersed to the four corners of the world after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans under Titus. Okay? They were dispersed. But even the, the diaspora, the dispersed Jews, rejected Messiah. Something else, isn't it? The stubbornness of the human heart, the darkness of the human heart, how we can look right at God's answer for us and reject it. How we can, we can be dealt with by God over and over again and reject it. How, how God can show mercy after mercy after mercy, and we can reject it. We need to pray, God, help my heart to remain pliable, flexible, humble, approachable, responsive to you. Amen? When Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. The sacrifices were still being offered, though they were meaningless now. After the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament sacrifices were null and void. Right? No more need to kill animals, but they were still doing it before the temple was destroyed because they hadn't accepted Christ. The decimation of Jerusalem predicted by Jesus was yet on the horizon. Yet Paul knew that Christianity was the end of the Judaism he had once served. All right? Hear me, everybody. When Jesus died on the cross and spilled his blood for you and me, was buried and rose again from the dead, the Old Testament mosaic law, covenants, sacrifices, festivals, all those things were rendered null and void. Because a new day had come. Amen? So I love knowing about the festivals, you know, Feast of Tabernacles, the, you know, the Day of Atonement and all those things. I love knowing about it, but they don't mean anything to God anymore. There's only one thing that means anything to God anymore. The death of his son on the cross for you and me. His shed blood. And that his son is coming back again. Jesus is the centerpiece in God's heart. Amen? And, and, and the, the Old Testament law, it passed away. It passed away. Amen. I could say a lot about people that raise money. On, oh, send in, send in a special gift offering this, this month because it's the, it's the uh, day of Pentecost and the Feast of Pentecost or it's the day of Jubilee or year of Jubilee or whatever. And they'll take these Old Testament festivals and, and twist them where they will tell you if you send your money in on the day of Pentecost... Or if you'll send your money in uh, on the, the year of Jubilee, the day of Jubilee, then God's going to triple your gift and God's going to really bless your socks off because you sent money in uh, on this sacred day. But they don't, they're not, listen, either they don't know the Bible or they know it and they're not being honest because God doesn't care about those festivals anymore. Come on, everybody. No, read the book of Hebrews. Read Hebrews on your own. It'll tell you over and over again that the new covenant rendered the old one null and void. Glory. We're in a new day. Amen? Everybody say new day. All right. Now, um, as a Christian, now follow this. Here's what Paul dealt with. Paul knew as a Christian he would have to come to terms with the problems of the gospel as they related to the Jew. Because the Jew, the recipients of the promises, had rejected the promise when it showed up. So how do I, how do I square the gospel with the Jewish people who have rejected the promise God made to them? Okay? Uh, what about all those ancient promises to the Jew? Were they canceled now in light of their rejection of Messiah? Legitimate question. 
Where were the Jew, Paul asked himself and answered the question, where would the Jew now stand in in relation to this new dispensation of grace? No honest explanation of the gospel could avoid these questions. This is why Paul wrote chapters 9 to 11. The great apostle is first going to look back at the past, and then he's going to look at the present, and finally he's going to look at the future. And he's going to show that in all of God's past dealings with Israel was the sovereignty of God. Everybody say sovereignty. You know what sovereignty means? He's the boss, applesauce. Sovereignty means God is sovereign over everything. He's going to do what he wants. Amen? Okay? That's the sovereignty of God. So he's going to say, he's going to show us, all of God's past dealings with Israel were based on his sovereignty. And then the key to all of his present dealings with Israel was the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. And the key to all of God's promised future dealings with Israel is the sincerity of God. Now let's deal with these. In Romans 9, we're going to see Paul carefully weigh God's past dealings with Israel and find that all those dealings are based on the simple principle of divine sovereignty. First, here's a mind blower. This is a mind blower. Paul's anguish for the Jewish people. When Paul thought of his own people, the Jew, and their alienation from God, he felt an overwhelming grief. Look what he says in verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for the Jewish people. Now, church, let this hit you. These are the people who had killed Messiah, who had beat Paul, five times whipped his back, 40 times saved one. So 195 scars lay across the Apostle Paul's back. And that's not talking about being three times beaten with rods, being shipwrecked, fasting, being rejected, lied about, slandered, attacked, undermined, stoned once and left for dead by the Jewish people. But he says, think about this. This is supernatural what we're looking at. Because how do people do that to you and you say, I've got such anguish in my heart for them, I would go to hell in their place. We're about to see that. Keep in mind, That wherever he went, they stirred up the populace against him. Even so, he loved them. Commentator John Phillips says, such a love is not of nature. That means not natural. It's supernatural. And it's a fruit of the Spirit. Oh, yes. How do you love somebody that constantly abuses you? How do you do it? It's not natural. Look what he says. For I could wish that I myself were cursed. And cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Whoa. Now, so you'll understand the word curse is anathema. And it never denotes just an exclusion or ostracism or excommunication. But it always uh, refers to a devotion to perdition. That means being eternally lost. It's It's a curse. If you anathematize somebody, you have cursed them to permanent separation from you. Paul's soul-winning passion for men, especially for his own countrymen, was such that he could actually, soberly, and truthfully, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, say that he would be willing to go to hell and be eternally damned, if that were possible, if by so doing it would lead his kinsmen to a saving knowledge of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you, folks, I'm going to be honest with you tonight. I don't think that I could do that. If, if, if God said to me, I'll send you to hell forever if it'll spring them, whoever them is from hell, will you do it? In and of myself, not in a million years. I'm not going to lie. That's, that, that is, we, we just read, I feel like taking off my shoes because we're on holy ground here. That we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit in a man that is incomprehensible. 
We're looking at a, a level of love that you can't wrap your mind around. It turns you into a pretzel. Okay? I would go to hell. And he said, the Holy Spirit knows I'm telling the truth. I would go to hell for them. Who would you go to hell for? Forever. Now, if it was a pit stop in hell, I might change my mind for a while. You know, if I could get out after a year, a couple of years, you know. But forever is a long time to be anathematized from the presence of God forever and forever. No, no, no. That's not a pit stop. That's forever. And he said, I would do it if I could. Everybody say, that's love in all caps. That's incomprehensible love. Now, next in verses 4 to 5, Paul lists several advantages of the Jews that made their rejection of Christ even more tragic. He says in verse 4, theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs is the covenants. Theirs is the receiving of the law. Theirs is the temple worship and all the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. He said, look what all God did for the Jews, and they still killed their promise. They were Israelites. They were adopted as sons. They experienced the glory of God. They were covenant partners with God. They had God's law. They had the temple worship service. They had God's promises. They were descendants of the patriarchs. They were the people through whom the Messiah was given. They had all these things, and they rejected the promise, Jesus Christ. With all these advantages of God's special blessings throughout their history, the Jews did not acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, all right? So the Gentiles, you and me, the Gentiles that were out there in the world had none of these things, none of these things. They had none of this. They were in pitch black spiritual darkness. They had no promises, no knowledge of God, no relationship, no covenants, no promises, no worship, nothing. They were left to, in Paul's day, they were left to the various deities from Greek mythology. And the Romans just took the Greek gods and turned them into Roman gods, gave them different names. You know, Zeus and all these others, um, Achilles and all the other gods and goddesses that uh, Greek mythology cooked up and people in Homer's day and all of that, the old world, they came up with all these gods because they didn't know the real God. And so all that the Gentiles had was none of these promises. All they had was these fake, weird, crazy, human-like deities. So Paul is giving us a question. Did God's word fail? That he made all these promises to the Jewish people, but they rejected the promise when he showed up. Jesus encapsulated all the promises of God. They were all consummated in him. So were God's promises rendered void for the Jewish people? No. Uh, he says in verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed. No, God's word didn't fail. The Jewish people failed, but God's word didn't fail. Amen. Although most of Israel had not believed in Jesus Christ, uh, God's word had not failed. So how could this be? Because there was, a, here, here's the answer. How could it be then that the promises of God, though the Jewish people failed how could it, to receive the promise, how can it be then that God's promise had not failed? Here's the answer. There was an Israel within Israel. Okay? Follow me. Verse 7. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Now, let me explain this. When we see Isaac mentioned in the Bible, in the New Testament, it points to the principle of faith. Isaac had been the child of promise. And he arrived not by works, but by faith. In God's promise. Are you ready? So Isaac was the child of promise who came by faith. Ishmael was the child of works that came by unbelief. Look what Romans 4 verse 18 says. We're jumping back 
some chapters now, all the way back to Romans 4, but let's read it again. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so he became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Why did he become the father of many nations? Because in hope he believed. Verse 19, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was dead. All right? Reproductively, Abraham's body was dead. He was 100. Since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also, everybody say it, dead. Because she was 90. This is an old couple, right? They're in the rocking chair on the front porch. It's over with. But here's where the two of them believed God no matter what they saw in the mirror. Yet, verse 20, he did not waver. Look at this. Abraham's faith is amazing. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. But instead, he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised, no matter what natural things looked like. Boy, that is great. So Abraham praised God saying, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I believe you're going to do it. Because even though my body is reproductively dead, you're not dead. You can do anything. And he believed God. Now, God's promises had not been for every Jew of Abrahamic descent. But they were made for those Jews who placed their faith in Messiah. Do you get it? When was Abraham declared righteous? When he believed God. When he believed God's word. By faith. When he said, God can do it no matter what. And when he believed God, he was declared righteous. Now he became the prototype. That's why he's called the father of our faith. He became the spiritual template, the prototype for all the rest of us. Because how are we saved? When we believe the word of God. What's the word of God? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And when we believe the word of God, we were declared righteous by faith. So Abraham was the prototype and, and we're, the, we're the children of Abraham in this respect, that we believed God and the blood of his son cleansed us of all unrighteousness. And we were saved not by works, but by grace through faith, by grace through faith. Paul elaborates by saying in verses eight to nine, in other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, no, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Remember, remember when the Pharisees were arguing with Jesus or trying to get him into an argument? And they said, we, we are sons of Abraham. And what did Jesus say to them? He said, you're the children of the devil. Jesus was not politically correct. Right? He said, you're the sons of the devil. You're son, and, and the lusts of your father, Satan, you will do. He called Satan their father. So by that statement alone, Jesus, under, of course, understood more than anyone that just because they were bloodline descendants of Abraham, they were not children of Abraham just by birth. Okay? At the appointed time, I will return, God said to Abraham, and Sarah will have a son. That is what the promise to Abraham was. And that's what he believed. At the appointed time, Abraham, I will return and Sarah will have a son. At the appointed time. Everybody say, God's got a timing. God's got a timing for everything. And it's an appointed time. Now, there, so there is an Israel within Israel. There is the natural Israel, the bloodline descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. But they are not going to heaven based on that. Then there is the Israel within Israel, which is those who have believed on Jesus Christ and put their faith in him and have been born again. Now that's the Israel within Israel, and that's how God's word did not fail. His promise is true. 
So there is natural Israel. Look at the land of Israel right now. It's filled primarily with natural Jews, right? But within them, there's a lot of Jewish people that have been born again, and that's the Israel within the Israel. Because there's spiritual Israel, those that have turned to God in faith by embracing Messiah Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach. So God's promises to the Jew had not failed. They were fulfilled for every Jew that placed his or her faith in Yeshua, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Paul continues, not only that, but Rebekah's children, and who were they? Jacob and Esau, had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Now, he's switching gears when he says not only that. So I feel like we need to take a breather because this is heavy stuff. I want us to lift our hands and just thank the Lord. That, that How many of you are so glad that you were born again by faith? That you're a child of Abraham, a, a descendant of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Praise your name. Praise your name. Praise your name. Praise your name. Praise your name, Lord. Say to the Lord with me, good stuff, Lord. I can take a little more. All right, here we go. Because now we're going into some heavy theological buzzwords. So follow. Not only that, now he's shifting gears. But Rebecca's children, Jacob and Esau, they had one and the same father. Their father was Isaac, right? They were twins. You remember that. Verse 11. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election, there's one of the buzzwords, election might stand. Not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, that is, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, these very difficult passages, because these passages, folks, are what belief systems like Calvinism spring from. This is Calvinist red meat. The word election, predestination, chosen, all of that. Those are Calvinist buzzwords. One night I may preach on the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, just so you can understand those two words. But let me move on. Now follow this. In these difficult passages, Paul describes God's choice of Jacob over Esau. Both sons had the same father and mother, no difference there. Rebekah conceived both by Isaac, no difference there. God chose Jacob, the younger twin, rather than Esau before they were born. This was done so that the selection of God could not have been based on their doing right or wrong or any other natural factor. In other words, you couldn't look at them and go, well, the reason he chose Jacob over Esau is because Esau was wicked. And so he said, well, looking at the two boys in their, let's say in their youth, I'm going to pick Jacob over Esau because Jacob is living better than Esau. He said, no, God did it when they were still in the womb. So there'd be be a matter of God's total sovereign choice and not anything they earned or disqualified themselves over. All right? So we see the wisdom of God is what chose Jacob and rejected Esau. We can see first that it was the wisdom of God that did it because going back a bit, it was God's wisdom that chose Isaac and rejected Ishmael regarding Abraham. Because watch this, in both cases, the fathers, Abraham and Isaac, pleaded with God to accept the rejected one. You remember when Abraham was waiting and waiting and waiting for Sarah to conceive? And Sarah finally said to him, look, go in to my maid, Hagar, and have a child by her. And let's quit all this waiting on God. Let's get with it and raise a kid. So he had relations with Hagar, and she gave birth to Ishmael. And do you remember Ishmael began to grow up? And it says Abraham loved him. But as Ishmael was growing up and still Sarah had not conceived, they were so tired of waiting. How many understand that? And they're looking in the mirror going, we're getting older and older. Come on, God. Uh, Like some of you are doing in your life. Come on, God. Have you heard my prayer? Have you seen my situation? Come on, God. How many of you in the last year have said, come on, God? Oh, yeah. Now watch this. And then Abraham blurted out, 
Oh, please let Ishmael suffice. Let him be the chosen one. And God said, no, 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 no. Ishmael is not the chosen one because the ch my choice is going to come from Sarah's womb and it's going to be the child of promise. And then remember, Jacob favored Esau over, um, or I'm sorry, um, Isaac favored uh, Esau over Jacob. Remember that? And, uh, and he was deceived. And it's another whole story. But both patriarchs wanted the unchosen one to suffice. And God would not let it happen. Yet God's wisdom is seen in the outworking of history. From Ishmael have come the Arab nations. And what are the Arab nations? They surround Israel right now. And they are the bitter foes of Israel to this day. And for long centuries, they have been passionate embracers, not of the true God, but of Islam. And please don't tell me it's the same God in Islam as it is Christianity. It's not. They are diametrically opposed. Allah is not Jehovah, God of the Bible. But that being said, um, look what happened. God's wisdom chose the right one because the Ishmael and, and um, from Ishmael came the Arab nations right now. Listen, the day is going to come when we're going to wake up one day, maybe, unless we've been raptured, and we're going to see a newscast. And the newscast is going to say, it's going to be all the headlines, and it's going to be the only thing any of them are covering, that a vast confederacy of Arab nations have descended upon Israel, attacking it to wipe it off the face of the map. Read Ezekiel 38 and Ezekiel 39. That is a yet-to-be-fulfilled Bible prophecy. And the nations that Ezekiel names are all rapidly, fully Islamic and anti-Israel right now. And many of them have said, we have one desire, that Israel is wiped off the map. That is the descendants of Esau and Ishmael. From Esau came Edom, the bitterest and most vengeful of all of Israel's ancient neighbors. As time passed, both Ishmael and Esau personally manifested hostility to the things of God, whereas Isaac and Jacob were the opposite. So with Ishmael, you have the Arab nations that hate Israel. With Esau, you have the Edomites that were terrible enemies of Israel the entirety of their existence until God finally wiped the Edomites completely out. Everybody doing okay? Amen. Let's continue. But God's choice of the two was also based on his sovereign will. God is under no obligation to explain his ways to man. He does what he wants. Amen? But God's choice of the two was also based on his sovereign will, not just his wisdom, but his sovereign will. So look at verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust to choose Jacob over Esau? No. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on who I want to have mercy on, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on who he wants to have mercy, and he hardens who he wants to harden. And this is a major Calvinistic verse now. Because the Calvinists say, you're either chosen by God to be saved, or you're chosen by God to be lost. And if he chooses you to be saved, you're lucky, basically. You're saved by grace because he chose you. You need to thank God that he chose you. And if he didn't choose you to be saved, you can't be saved. Because it's all by God's choice, and we have no will in the matter. And this is where, in my humble opinion, Calvinists err. Because this is not what he's saying here. He's talking about an event in history that was in a slice of time. Pharaoh and Israel being delivered from Egypt. That doesn't mean you extrapolate that over the whole Bible and say that's the way that God deals with people throughout the entire word of God. Because there's little verses like, whosoever will. Whosoever what? 
Will. Well, that sounds to me like you've got a will. You know what you are? You're a whosoever. So am I. I'm so glad I was a whosoever. I'm so glad this whosoever willed to turn to Christ. Right? All right. Now, let me move on. God showed mercy to Moses and to Israel, but he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, Paul attributes both the bestowal of mercy and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to God's sovereign will. Now, many people say, but that's not fair. But on closer inspection of the many times we're told that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, did you know most of those times are attributed to Pharaoh himself? He hardened his own heart. It's only when still resisting God... After the sixth of ten plagues, do we read for the very first time in the Hebrew language, directly translating it from Hebrew, quote, the Lord made firm the heart of Pharaoh. Up to then, the Hebrew reads, Pharaoh made heavy his own heart. Amen. So you can harden your heart long enough where God will finally say, all right. Go ahead. I'm hardening your heart. You're never going to turn to me, and I know it. Now, Paul anticipates our response, and we're almost done, everybody. I know this has been a lot. I told you it was going to be heavy stuff. All right? This is T-bone, medium rare. All right? Paul anticipates our response. Now, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? How can God blame me if I'm only doing what he has chosen to make me do. Paul is saying, you, a mere man, skewed in your judgment by sin, are not wise enough to question God. Boy, talk about putting you in your place. Secondly, such a question ignores the fact that God's actions are always born of righteousness and ever tempered with mercy. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Everybody say, yes, he will. Paul asked, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you give me this nose, these eyes, this height, this color hair, this race? Why? Right? Why did you make me like this? But does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? As the potter is sovereign over the clay to do with it as he pleases, so is God over men. He continues, and we're almost done. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath? The Egyptians, in this case, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, the children of Israel, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, who he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul is concluding his whole argument by stressing the fact that the Gentiles are as much an object of God's mercy as are the Jews. The salvation of us Gentiles was never an afterthought with God. It was a forethought. The words of God predicted very clearly the ultimate blessing of God in a great Gentile revival. Look what Hosea said as we come to a close. Hosea predicted, I will call them my people who are not my people. Everybody say, that be me. Gentiles, okay? And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. That's, that's us. And it will happen in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God, and that's you and me. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Here comes the prophet Isaiah after Hosea. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Closing out chapter 9, Romans What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued the law and righteousness by works, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were, by works. 
They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And that's Jesus Christ and the fact we come to him by faith, not works. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one that trusts in him will never be put to shame. Hallelujah. Can we stand up together? How many of you say with me, that was red meat? How many got that? Did you get that pretty well tonight? You, you follow? You're tracking with me? I know that's a lot. Again, why does it matter? All kinds of things in that chapter matter to us. The mercy he showed on us Gentiles. I'm so thankful for the mercy of God. Amen. Can we lift our hands and just say, thank you, Lord. I'm saved by faith. I'm a child of Abraham by faith in God and in his word. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's sing one chorus, brother, and then we'll go tonight. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I could take a couple of questions, uh, but unless there's something just burning on your heart, I don't want to keep you too late. Is, is there one or two questions burning on your heart you want to know tonight? Okay. All right. Two. Real quick. Let me do them real quickly, and I promise I'll answer them as quickly as I can. Amen. Hey, Pastor. Do you recommend... There's no mic. There we go. Yeah, got it. Do you recommend the Passion Translation, and if oh, no, not, no, why? No, 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 no. Why? Okay, because the passion is not a translation for starters. Passion is not even a decent paraphrase. If you check, um, and you have to know a little bit of Greek, a little bit of Hebrew here, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist. The passion translation is a work of one man. There is not a translation, Bible translation you have that did not take place by the work of a committee who are masters of the languages, Greek and Hebrew and Latin, smattering of Latin, okay, is one man. He, he is not a language expert. If you read how he even decided to do the Passion Translation, he says he was awakened with, by a dream and by a vision where a voice said to him to, to translate the Bible into this Passion Translation. If you go to... The New Testament, some of the New Testament book, there's some old, but just take Galatians. I believe Galatians is done. And you, and you go to the original language and you look at the liberties he has taken to add to the word of God. Uh, they are big. He took liberties that no translator would ever take. He added to it. He added to verses you look at some verses, you can look at the Greek uh, sentence, like one sentence, and you'll see there's a paragraph that he added. Um, there are experts in the languages all over the world that have come out and denounced the passion, and rightly so. Uh, it, it's not even, like I said, it's not even a good paraphrase. I think the best paraphrase is probably the Living Bible. The message, eh, the message is okay, but I rarely use it. But the passion... I would tell you, well, I don't want to tell you what I would do with one if I had one, but it's, and unfortunately, a lot of people are getting one because they don't understand what was done with that trans, it's not a translation. It is absolutely not a translation. So I know I'm sounding strong because I feel very strongly about it. I think it leads people astray. And the author uh, also wrote into it his particular doctrinal leanings, some of which are, to me, borderline heretical. And I could go into that more if I had more time. Um, 
That's my honest answer. But beware of the passion, TPT, as it's so called. All right, yeah. one more. Yes, right, one more here. Yeah, you mentioned some things at the beginning about the Old Testament, like uh, you know, festivals and things of that nature yeah. that don't really yeah. matter. And there's, yeah. probably, there's a lot of things in the Old Testament, but my yeah. question to you is, how are we supposed to read the New Testament? Is it to learn the character or the heart of God, or just would love your well, opinion Well, the on New that? Testament... You have the Gospels telling you about the life of Christ. You have the Epistles telling you how to walk with Christ. All right? You have the Revelation. Genesis begins with the beginning of time. Revelation is with the end of time. So the Bible is this perfect, uniform volume, 66 books in one volume. You're carrying around your own library when you're carrying your Bible. 66 books. But the New, the New Testament, uh, there's, a, there's an old saying. The New Testament is the Old Testament uh, concealed. No. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. That the New Testament helps us then understand everything the Old Testament was pointing to. Because the Old Testament is nothing but types and shadows and signs pointing down the tunnel of time to the coming of Christ. Every book in the Old Testament is filled with Jesus. It's all about Jesus, stem to stern, all right? But the New Testament then helps us understand what the Old Testament was pointing to, what the festivals were pointing to, what the, the, the sacrifices were pointing to, what all of it was pointing to. It was pointing to the arrival of the Son of God. So the Gospels, the ministry of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the epistles, here's how you walk it out. Here's what the cross did for you. And the revelations, here's what's coming. Amen. All right. All right. God bless all of you. Have a good night. We will see you Sunday. We love you. God bless them as they go out. Thank you for keeping us healthy and strong. Amen.